Hello and welcome back to our podcast. We're so glad that you can be here with us as we discuss education and the church this week. It's going to be a promising topic. My name's Cameron and I am recording this from Launceston, Tasmania. And I'm Luke, recording from Hong Kong. And I'm Lachlan. I'm recording from Sydney, where there are a number of storms rolling through this evening. So if you hear rumbling in the background, it's probably thunder, not my stomach. Ken can't be with us today. He's uh, having internet problems. And uh, so he can't join in with our recording, but he'll be back with us next week. So Lachlan, we're talking about uh, education and the church in the lesson quarterly this week. What question jumped out at you as you think about education and the church? Well... I sat and thought about it a bit, and uh, I have to admit, I didn't look through the lesson in nitty-gritty detail, but a question that jumped out at me was, when does education turn into indoctrination? I, I guess in church context, we do a fair bit of teaching uh, and, and of everyone. There's Sabbath school. Um, we are firm believers in Sabbath school. That's why we sit here every week and record an episode to share with you all. So uh, I'm not against Sabbath school at all, but the... There does seem to be an interesting thing to explore about the differences between education and indoctrination. What does indoctrination mean as opposed to education? I mean, we do hope we do hope to convince people of our doctrines. Yes, in in a sense, in, indoctrination is is always used as a pejorative in our societies. In a sense, it literally just means to to put your doctrines in something, yeah, or someone. And if the doctrines are good, surely that's a, you know, I'm being devil's advocate here. If the doctrines are good, surely it's a good thing to put them in people. So I think that the reason there's a negative association with the word is that it implies a lack of critical thinking. It implies a lack of sort of analysis, evaluation, logic, and rigor. And it implies a sort of, I don't know, a bit of a blind acceptance or or an attempt to, to skew someone's ability to make a free and rational choice. Maybe those things are associated with indoctrination. So would you, would you say that in indoctrination in, with this connotation means specifically teaching things that are not true as though they were true? Does it have some element of untruth in it? Maybe, maybe sometimes untruth, sometimes... Uh misplaced emphasis i think of early adventist missionaries going to different cultures and insisting that they dress certain ways hmm. and it being not really appropriate to the local climate that has the smack of indoctrination about it but there's also a dangerous side is is this a true story is this apocryphal i remember hearing it at some point but was it the case that there was a, a message sent out from the adventist church in rwanda during the genocide asking whether or not it was appropriate to continue the killings on Sabbath? I have heard the story as well, and I would not dare to comment on whether or not it's truthful, because I, I honestly don't know. But I would like to think that it was not true. I, I would like to think it's not true as well. It's, of course, possible that it might be true. It certainly illustrates Let's take point. it as a hypothetical, and um, it's a frightening hypothetical, isn't it? But but the idea that... that uh, you could be convinced in your own mind that you're adhering to proper doctrine and yet missing out on some really key and obviously more essential um, elements of, of living a good life uh, 
Yeah, it's a, maybe that's that's the sort of thing that came to my mind. We, of course, indoctrinate, though, uh, each other and our children on a huge number of topics where we spend our whole lives trying to do it in the sense that we are trying to push our own agendas um, all the time and and not just on religious matters, on other matters. And if, if indoctrination means uh, a faith that is at times inaccurate, at times insincere, at times has misplaced emphasis, then it's certainly something that I'm guilty of. Mm. I mean, I'm thinking of different contexts where you don't use the word indoctrination, but it does happen. In Australia, we indoctrinate children to be careful at the beach because the currents in the water can be dangerous. Australian kids grow up learning that and being indoctrinated with that, not, not knowing it and deciding it after a careful evaluation of all of the data, but knowing it because it's just been drummed into them from a very young age. And I could think of so many other examples. I guess all of culture is in some ways um, a sort of process of indoctrination. The things that we grow up with uh, that, that we think are normal. Um, you know, living in yes. Germany highlighted this to me. As I, and as an Australian growing up, the idea of wearing socks inside your sandals seemed a ludicrous and laughable idea. I have lived in Germany for four years, and I now would wear socks with sandals preferentially. It's a whoa, very whoa, smart, whoa. wise hang thing. Hang on, hang on, hold on. Hold on. <laughs> Luke, in Hong Kong, this is this is a revelation. In Hong Kong, do people wear socks in sandals? Thick woolly socks, probably. No, it's way too hot. <laughs> you just wear sandals. Yeah, but the socks stop your sandals getting sweaty, and it's much. It's really smart. Anyway, the, no, the I, socks I guess what I'm saying make the sweat worse. I guess I'm I'm identifying that indoctrination could be an idea taken much more broadly to mean not just negative things, but actually the whole set mm. of things which, which are, um, helpfully, imprinted onto us as children as as waymarks and just as what is normal help us get around the world. Mm. But that that is not how the word is usually used. It's it's almost always used as a pejorative. Yeah, you're right, Luke. It is it is seen negatively, and there is obviously a negative side to it. And there are sort of some notable and famous examples of of the sort of opposite of indoctrination. Uh, there was the story. I think it was about Rudyard Kipling. Was taken into his father's library as a ten year old, and his father said to him that all the books in this library were extremely dangerous, and that it. He didn't want to catch his son reading any of them. And the uh, immediate consequence of this was, and in later life, Rudyard Kipling realised that the intended consequence was that he'd read them all inside a year. <laughs> but his father had wanted him to just discover them for himself. Hmm. I might have to remember that trick. So how does this fit into church? I mean, in church, we have things that we feel very strongly about. And this is a, a Sabbath school podcast. Sabbath school is meant to be a school. It's meant to be about education. Um, it's a bit of a reflexive topic, this one. Uh, so how does it fit in? How does it fit in? What's the difference in Sabbath school between a good education and the negative uh, side of the concept of indoctrination? So I, I think uh, I'm having an idea that I haven't actually put together in my mind before, but I, I think that as we talk about indoctrination, I'm realizing that it's super closely connected with, um, broadly speaking, colonial culture, colonialism. The idea 
of colonialism one aspect of it was this idea we have we are civilized we have all the things of value except for perhaps land and um we will go to these barbarians these savages these natives and we will give them all the good things and you mentioned clothing but you know culture uh, literature all sorts of things and and christianity and christian missionaries have yeah or disease yeah christian missionaries have fallen a little bit into the trap of um colonialism as a mindset and broad you know across the world in recent decades there's been all sorts of post-colonialism kind of recognition that 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 was way too one-sided so i guess what i'm hearing just as we talk about it is the negative aspect of indoctrination is if it's very one-sided so i think that what we would want to make sure of is um if we're going to seek education that that has at its basis a kind of quest for what is true and to my mind if you're if you're on a quest for what is true then you'll be open to learning things as well as teaching yeah, there are some notable exceptions to to what you described as sort of traditional missionary practice. I remember, like a Bible study I had at college uh, from a gentleman who's done a lot of evangelism in Southeast Asia, and I can't think of his name in in Buddhist communities. Ah, but he runs he runs a Buddhist temple, and it it is to all appearances a Buddhist temple, and. The only difference is, if you walk into it, that the statue of Buddha is missing. And if anyone asks, they are told that uh, at this temple they worship the source of the, the, the spirit behind the universe that, that gave Buddha his inspiration. But apart from this, it's a, it's a very traditional Buddhist service. They chant, the, they, they, they chant their chants, they talk about right living, they, they recite the Eightfold Paths, of Buddhism, they they do all this stuff, and at the very end, before they leave, they say, "And to him who's able to keep us from falling, uh, be all glory." That that passage from I think it's the end of Ephesians or one of the Paul's letters, and they love it because Buddhists, there's so much commendable about about the Buddhist faith, about uh, an insistence on right living, but the concept that there might be something that could help us live right, that's sort of on our side, is is a genuine welcome addition to what they know. And gradually people who attend this service become, I guess you could say, more and more indoctrinated. And he has people who worship with him, who accept Christ as their personal saviour, who read Ellen White, who are looking forward to Christ's second coming, and who call themselves Buddhists. Yeah, that's that's a really that's a really interesting model. That is that is definitely um what I would term uh, post-colonialist sort of evangelism or, or anti-colonialist evangelism, going and, and working with what is there rather than imposing cultures and structures and ideas right from the outset, uh, straight from the outside. Mm, what Bible passages come to mind as we think of, of uh, the Bible and its commentary on education in the church? This is a difficult one, actually, because... I, I didn't think of this before the podcast. It just came to me. What does the Bible have to say about the church before we say, talk about education in the church? That there's nothing in the Bible that resembles very much the sort of church structure and the sort of church uh, service that I attend. 
Mm. Well, there couldn't possibly be because the sort of church structure and the sort of church services that we know now were developed after widespread literacy and everybody could read and write. Yeah. And that was that was not the society that the church originally formed in. Well, well, I, I have a feeling as as we're fifteen minutes into this recording that discussing what the Bible has to say about the church may take up too much time, and uh, it, I think it comes with the <laughs> warning possibly. that we talked about last week. Warning: This may be fun to discuss. So let's sidestep that question. I thought it'd be a fun one to come back to. Let's accept the church part. Uh, and what does the Bible have to say about education and the church? Well, the verse that came to my mind, Cam, was Proverbs 22, verse 6. It's pretty well known. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And I've always it held that so verse easy. in positive esteem, and I still do. But as I read it tonight, as we talk about this particular contrast, I'm wondering whether... This verse in Proverbs 22 is a picture of education or a picture of indoctrination? Well, I, I mean, from what we have discussed, it, summarizing and simplifying very much, education and indoctrination are two different words for what might be the same thing. Because you can also have bad educations. You can have an education which teaches people things that are not true, or which doesn't teach people to think, or which teaches people to hate and despise a subject because they misunderstand it and find it's boring. Cough, high mm. school, maths, cough. And so it's, let's just say good education and bad education. Yeah, mm. I think mm. I think that might be what's The question that came to my mind, Locke, is, is that a description of education happening in the context of a church? My guess is, from the Jewish context, that that's referring more so to education happening in the home. Because I know that the Jews held... Yeah. And uh, Jewish mothers had very pivotal roles in, in educating their children. Well, another point to make um, that is related to discussing uh, what the Bible says about the church is that the church in the time of Christ, as opposed to now, existed in a society which did not have formal schooling. The, the, the concept of formal schooling in that part of the world at that time did not exist. Um, so education was entirely the province of the family, mm -hmm. uh, up, to, up to and including trades, because the human tradition of humankind for most of our existence has been that trades were passed down, occupations, jobs, as we now call them, job is also another very modern concept, were passed down within a family because who better to teach the thing than the parent and who better to learn it than the child? Why would you get an outsider to come and do it? Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of one extra useful uh, dif distinction to make between education and indoctrination, perhaps. And that is um, the, the extent to which it's ideologically motivated. So... Um, if you go to learn the piano, your piano teacher educates you and teaches you uh, how to play the piano. But if your piano teacher has a particular sort of ideological view of, of the world or of the musical world, for example, and says, you know, minor keys are evil. You can only play songs that are in major keys. And if that 
view of the world, if that sort of ideology of the world forms a you know, strong basis of the message and the training that they provide, then I would say that's more indoctrination than education. And I, I think that this happens actually a lot of places in the civic, you know, secular civic landscape. And I'm thinking particularly of the teaching of history, because history is one of those topics which has many, a multitude of perspectives. And, you know, I'm thinking in the in the Australian context over my own lifetime, the narratives and framing of the indigenous cultures and the role of Aboriginals in Australia's history has mm. been has changed in the way that history is taught. And if certainly if you go two generations or more, um, history in Australia has gone from being learning about English kings and some world wars to to learning far more about our own indigenous heritage in the cultural makeup of Australia. And more recently still in the US, of course, uh, as part of the, I guess you could almost say the culture wars that rage around issues relating to, um, you know, black America and, and it's the, the, the extent to which it has level and equal opportunities to, to white America. Um, you know, I've heard things even in the last 12 months about certain ideologically motivated injections into the teaching of history or attempts to do so. And that means that history is really susceptible to indoctrination, uh, the, the teaching of history. So it's not, it's not limited to religious contexts at all. And there's some famous cases. I was thinking, um, I was thinking this week about the very, uh, let's be honest, uh, just criticism that has been made of the Christian Church, that it has provided historically a haven to a huge number of corrupt people who are exploiting others, and and who who use the the instruments available to them, which includes education systems, you know, particularly like you were saying, Luke, in past times where education was the sort of sole province of the church, uh, to control the flow of information. And and you know mm. seeing the church as a as a as a power figure, and and comments that have been made to me in the past effectively are that this somewhat undermines surely uh, a faith uh, in I was going to say faith in Christianity. Let's hope we don't have faith in Christianity, a faith in God, a Christian faith in God. To see to see it so so dominated at times by these corrupt figures. And I think that's a very just criticism. Uh, I, I thought, though, of a conversation I had with a friend recently about a book, which I've not read, but which sounds good. It's called Merchants of Doubt. And it's about the scientists who were employed for their own financial gain to cast doubt on the science surrounding smoking, the health effects of smoking, hmm. and of climate change. And if you look at an effort to miseducate society, you know, the confusion that scientists with credentials in some parts of science maybe speaking outside of their direct area of expertise but still broadly claiming to operate under the umbrella of science the amount of doubt and misinformation that these people have spread is also appalling a scientist doesn't have any doubt any trouble though looking at at those efforts to miseducate people and saying it doesn't matter what these people claim they are not doing science hmm. uh so mm. I think that that does give some license for a Christian to say, we agree 
that the church has abused its its position of power, particularly in the dissemination of information. And there have been corrupt figures within the church operating largely to, to increase their own influence and financial gains. But, but we think that these people, despite their claims, were not Christians, or at least were not accurately representing yeah. Christianity. We're not representing we're, Christ. Yeah, we're not representing the, the ideals or the, um, the values. It's a very tricky topic. Yeah, Luke, did um, you have any Bible passages that, that came to mind? Well, yes, I did have one. It's also in Proverbs. And uh, it's Proverbs 2, and it's starting from verse 1. Um, it, it's a great... Proverbs, Proverbs, um, Proverbs is one of my favorite books in the Bible. And it, it starts off with a real bang. The first, two, the first few chapters are, are really excellent. So Proverbs 2 starts like this. Uh, a, my son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding. Indeed, if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. Hmm. And the, the reason I like this is because it does give us some clues over what let's say, good education is as opposed to bad education or, or indoctrination, if you want to call it that. So the, the emphasis is on... You look at the words that are used um, to describe what you're supposed to be searching for. is wisdom, understanding, insight. And wisdom, wisdom, insight, and understanding are compared to silver and treasure, now, wisdom, insight, and understanding are not doctrinal points. They are not a set of facts. It's not, they're not a collection of information. These are all ways of thinking. Mm. Yeah. These, these are ways of using your brain to its capacity, if you will. And the implication in these verses, which I, th I think is what you're going to say, Cam. Sorry for interrupting you. Uh, tell me if I got this right. The implication is very much... That these are not things you get automatically or easily. You have to work for them and you have to want them. And it's a lot of effort. I think it's one of the distinguishing features between education and indoctrination. Education is where you recognize that, that the student's mind is capable of, given the correct scaffolding perhaps, but, but they are to be kept, they're not to be kept on a short leash. Students can be given a bit of a longer leash and allowed to explore a bit and that when you learn something in that context it's more memorable and it's it's uh more lasting and uh this idea that we're encouraged to search as opposed to sort of being told all the time you can't read that you can't look at that and you can't think this yeah. well that's what jumped out at me about this passage uh luke thanks for bringing our attention to it so the agency here is completely on the learner not the teacher. Obviously, it, it closes out with the Lord gives wisdom. But, but look at the make your ear attentive, uh, incline your heart, raise your voice for understanding, search for it as for hidden treasures. There's, there's, a, lot of, there's a lot of agency and motivation and energy coming from the side of the learner here. And uh, that is also something I think that's, that's education at its best. Mm. Um, 
I mean, those those of us that have been involved with some sorts of teaching, it's pretty pretty much a waste of time if the student isn't keen to isn't mm. wanting to learn. <laughs> don't don't um, even well, talk to me about it. It, 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 it is a waste of time if <laughs> it's term four, if, and I'm. Uh, well, that yeah. t- touched a nerve, did it, Cam? It touched a nerve. Well, we we better move on quickly. Here's another thought. Then, um, a, an idea that's another contrast. Education at its best, the the teacher can say that they have succeeded in the utmost if the student ends up being better at it than the teacher. If the student mm. surpasses the teacher and the teacher was not the source of all knowledge but was the catalyst for the student to gain mastery of what they were learning, then that teacher has indeed succeeded outrageously. But in indoctrination, if the student surpasses the teacher, that means that they think differently from the teacher. That is threatening. That means the teacher has failed. Hey, there's something else about this verse that I wanted to, to suggest, um, which is, so Lachlan, in your professional context, what does applying your heart to understanding and calling out for insight and crying aloud for understanding, what does that, um, what do those phrases uh, remind you of in your professional context? Right. So my professional context is is science research, and they, the first thing, tongue in cheek, they're crying out for understanding. That's that's the weeping and gnashing of teeth that most students have in about second year calculus at university, um, about two weeks before the exam. But but more, <laughs> um, more seriously, it it to me is is imagery that speaks to that that thirst for that curiosity i i would suggest two things one is that you can't go looking for the truth if you think you already have it yes and the second one is that this says this description of education is very much in line with the if not the technical aspects certainly the motivating uh drive the desire the passion behind scientific research it is a search Mm. for understanding now the conventional view in the world and it's a conventional view that very much impacts on the way sabbath school is done in in organized churches at least the ones that we're familiar with is that there's some sort of conflict between science and religion you can't have a desire for understanding and evidence Um, and research coexist with a faith in God. I personally, having thought about this topic a lot, think that that's nonsense, but it is a very widely held assumption. And it's an assumption that definitely impacts the way Sabbath school and church teachings are done. Because I think in some ways there's almost a fear to use any methods or tools that, that seem scientific. But yet here we are in the Bible... And it is describing the process of of scientific curiosity. And and Luke, it's not an accident that sort of Western modern science arose from a Christian, a Judeo-Christian culture. If you believe that the world was created by accident, by warring gods, who unthinkingly, you know, body a god's body dies and comes to the earth, and something else, and something else, but it's all been more or less accidental, and we're now at the whim of these you know, divine beings. That doesn't provide a, a huge amount of 
uh, confidence that you even have a chance of understanding anything about the world. When you believe that the world was created deliberately and that the Lord is the source of wisdom, as it talks about in Proverbs, when you're encouraged to search and to find things out and to look and that God is structured and ordered, there is at least a hope that maybe the things around us can be explained. So, you know, it's worth noting that many of the early prominent scientists were clergy, members of the clergy. That's partly because they were the only people who had spare time on their hands because they were fed and clothed. and and who could read. And who could read. (laughs) And they were fed and clothed and not given very much to do. Um, But it's also partly because their theology endorsed finding out about the world. Well, I, I think it's it's no coincidence that, again, in a modern context, you don't get any of this. But the, this sort of perceived, I, th- I will call it, I think, an illusion that there's some sort of conflict between science and religion, is an entirely modern construct. For most of human history, most of scientific advances have been done by religions. Because for exactly that reason you said, the core of, of almost all religions is the idea that the universe can be understood. If you don't think it can be understood, then there is naturally no point trying to understand it. You just accept that it's a wild, capricious, random place. Uh, and there's there's no logic to any of it. Yeah. Luke? Yes, go ahead. Luke, I, I just want to refer to a comment you made earlier. You said that we can't search for the truth if we already have it. It's a really interesting conundrum, particularly in the context of education and indoctrination. And when we look at the the negative side of indoctrination, this idea of saying to our children and to the people in our church, you must think this way, as I think. Don't think about it too much on your own. Uh, That has obvious problems. And it obviously limits your ability to search for truth. Uh, In that sense, it's really genuinely the case that we can't participate in a search if we think we've already arrived and that there's nothing left to find at the same time you know there's lots of times where it's where we do do this you know when we're talking to our kids about diet we don't say to our kids just try things and and eat what you think's best (laughs) we I, i don't think that would end up very well in fact contrary to the evidence of their senses we say to the child that is not actually good for your body I know, I know it tastes delicious, uh, but that's not good for you. And and we go through a process of indoctrination. In other words, we act to our kids as if we do know the truth, with the exception of you know trained nutritionists and people who, who devote a large amount of their spare time to studying nutrition. Most adults would admit, when they're not in the company of their kids, that they actually have a fairly uh, imprecise knowledge of what food is good for you and exactly what amounts and exactly what the balance should be. And then you just start reading and you discover that even amongst nutritionists, there's a fair amount of disagreement about what the balance of protein to carbohydrates should be to this, to that. Uh, and you discover when you scratch the surface that uh, the parents, who are in the presence of their kids, insist to their kids that they know the truth. In private will say that they don't know the truth, that they don't know all of it, that there's still lots left to learn. And that's, I think, a helpful model. That sort of juxtaposition is something we do need to carry into Sabbath school. There are times where we do need to say to our our children, we just genuinely believe this is true. These are are Mm. ideas that we hold to be true. They've helped us. And yet at the same time, perhaps with older children and, and to encourage kids as they get older, I mean, you don't want... 
You don't want your kids to never question diet, their diet past the age of seven. As they get older and as more, yeah. as more nutritional knowledge comes to light, you want the kids to have grasped the principle that it's good to look after your health, but to be pretty flexible. Like, I don't expect them to eat exactly as I ate. And the honest truth is, if they were aware of how many times I've snuck in and nibbled a piece of chocolate in the evening, um, I probably don't live. I don't <laughs> probably don't live up to the advice I give as well as I should anyway. So it's not that we want them yeah. to never change. It's just that's a helpful, I think, sort of example of how we do balance that paradigm. That is helpful. Yeah. At the end of the day, what you're actually wanting your, your child to learn is, is to be aware of and thoughtful about the food that they're eating. You're not wanting them to spend the rest of their life eating exactly one and a half carrots every single day. I think that that's a really interesting point, Cam, about we naturally... It's related to it's related to this difference between education and, and indoctrination being mostly, not entirely, but mostly a matter of perspective. Because, you know, there is a criticism leveled at the church, and in some cases I think a valid one, that they're, you're indoctrinating children. The assumption by the use of the word indoctrination, according to what we've been discussing, is that you are teaching, it is a bad education you are teaching them bad things or wrong things, which as a Christian, your immediate response should be, well, it's not indoctrination because we're teaching them true things and things that will benefit them and things that will help them to benefit others. Now, I'm not saying that everything some Christians or people who claim to be Christians teach to their children or the way that they teach it to them is is good, but a Christian education is not by definition a bad one. Uh, certainly, if you are a Christian, you can't take that view. One fitting reply would be to say, and let us hope this is true, uh, is to say to people, well, yes, it, it is the case that I'm teaching my kids to think thus, thus, and thus. But more importantly, and perhaps like, sort of preeminently, uh, the underlying thing that I'm teaching them is to think about these things. And, and that from experience, we know that Kids don't always grow up and believe exactly the same things um, as their parents. But but we do think a thinking life is better than a non-thinking life. And, and if what we are teaching them, I think this is where we move from the bad education in terms of the way uh, indoctrination is commonly used to the good education. The end goal, even perhaps at a young age where the, where the kids are not able to understand nuance or complexity or, or things, you know, we, we are working towards... Uh, helping people to be to be thinkers. I hate using this. I I feel dirty even saying this phrase. But as a parent, <laughs> what I would be most proud of is to see my daughter think for herself. Well, mm. use her brain well, not be deceived by obvious falsehoods. Be capable of logic and reasoning and discernment and judgment. And, and wisdom and understanding and insight, that is what I want her to be able to do. The wisdom, understanding and insight, coming back to that, that passage in Proverbs, are all, again, they're all ways of thinking. They are not mm -hmm. sets of information. Even then, there's, yeah. An, yeah. there's another element to this. Uh, Chesterton, in his book Orthodoxy, points out that we often say that someone who's gone mad has lost their reason. And 
He said, this is not true. It's obviously not true. If you go and talk to someone who is mad, talk to someone who believes the world is conspiring against them, or talk to someone who believes they're the king of England, they, they can explain many reasons why what they think is true is true. And it's not easy to convince them otherwise. If you say to someone who's under a delusion that the whole world is conspiring against them, uh, if you say, well, I asked them and they said they're not, that's exactly what conspirators would do. And hmm. the more stridently you argue with such a person, the more they will begin to suspect that you are one of the conspirators. And whatever you can say about their delusion, it is at least logically consistent. It is possible that everyone is conspiring against them. And the facts as they see it fit into their theory fairly completely. It's not, it's not reason hmm. that people have lost. It's not their reasoning. That's, no, the, in fact, yeah. what they've done is they've lost everything except for their reasoning. And, and what Chesterton said is, it's a broad sense of perspective. You know, it could be that everyone is conspiring against you. But what a mean, and mean as in, not nasty, but mean as in, like, poor and low. Um, what a, what a, what a, what a mm. poor conspiracy it is that the whole world's interested in you. I mean, there's a climate crisis and... <laughs> Everything, yeah, and it's true you might be the king of England, but but what what a disappointing king you are, really. I mean, it it could, it could be true that you are you are Christ. You could be that you are the Messiah of the world, and it could be that the world knows no love greater than yours. Uh, but what mm. a what a insufficient love that is, and isn't it isn't this it sad is, that you is... can imagine nothing bigger than yourself? So one of the things we want to encourage mm. in our children is not just it is certainly ways of thinking, but it's also the things in life, being able to enjoy nature, being able to revel in feeling small. People, people who are mad always feel large. The universe always revolves around them. Teaching our children to enjoy feeling small, to enjoy the smell of roses and to think that's just so incredible. That's just amazing. Why does the universe have to be like, why does this thing have to be here? Uh, it's such an oddity. Mm. You know, that sort of breadth of experience is something that we're trying to teach our children. The sanity. This is, mm. this is a, yes, this is a little bit tangential, but I heard a very good sort of analysis of conspiracy theories that, that posited two things. That exactly as you say, the, the problem is not reasoning. All sorts of, of consistent, complicated logic and rationale can go into maintaining a, a completely obviously inaccurate view of the world. But what conspiracy theories do is they feed two things that people really need. Um, they make the world simpler, invariably, so it's easier to understand, because reality is messy and complicated and hard to understand, and our brains don't like that very much. And the second thing they do is they make the the believer feel significant, more important. They feel that need of uh, you know something. I think that I'm part of this 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 small elite group in possession of the truth. Yeah. And it's that weird. It's that weird contradiction. It's a weird contra The thing they believe is is sufficiently complicated that no one else in the world has been able to crack it. And at the same time, it's completely uh, trivial enough that they have been able to see through it easily. 
So here's the question, I guess, and this is the real question as we think about educating our, our children. Is Christianity a conspiracy? Is it, is it something that has been cooked up to simplify the universe and to just make us feel well, good? Let me put it this way. Something can... can You can have a conspiracy theory and the people holding it can have all of these characteristics and they can actually be believing in something which is true. If you understand where the culture mm. and the psychology of it is not dependent on whether or not it's true. It's just the fact that most conspiracy theories are almost certainly in a way that is approaching a hundred percent not true. But it's not it's not it's not required for for a, for it to be untrue for it to have characteristics of conspiracy theory. And I would say that certainly the way some churches organize themselves and communicate and think about themselves definitely not all but certainly some have all the hallmarks of conspiracy theorists in the psychology and in the thought processes my theory luke is that uh, uh there is a central uh body of people probably the knights templar who um whose job it is to cook up all these conspiracy theories and their aim is to destabilize the world governments and that whenever I meet someone who's peddling a conspiracy theory, they are obviously part of this group, working hard to undermine everything that I hold dear. Wow. You have do a meta-conspiracy. You, I do, yeah. I do. do you find it helpful to point out to such conspiracy theorists that they are agents of the great conspiracy? No, because the trouble is, um, as a then-peddler of a conspiracy theory myself, I'm immediately suspect. So, <laughs> no, see, Cam, what, what you just do is when they tell you their conspiracy theory, you just nod sagely and go, yes, brother. If I'm going to answer my own question, I don't think that Christianity for me does make life simpler. I think it makes life better. But being told... I, I agree. Being told that I have to love my neighbour does not make things simpler. And, and it, it, it certainly doesn't make them easier. No, and in as much as Christianity does provide significance to human life... It provides significance to everyone else's life too. Every person you meet is in the image mm. of God. And that's thinking of other people's significance is definitely something that makes it less of a conspiracy theory. I think the ultimate test, of course, though, is, you know, Christ said, you know a tree by its fruit. And the question is, does it work? Does, does a belief in Christianity, and perhaps more importantly, an effort to engage with God, does it produce a better life? Um, and I think of the passage in Matthew 7, uh, where Christ says, you know, many people are going to say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we say all the right things and think all the right things and, and do all the right doing things? And, and, and Christ says to them plainly, I, I never knew you. Uh, and then he goes mm. on to say the story of the wise and foolish builders who build their, you know, the one who builds their house upon the rock. And there's a kid's song about this. And... Perhaps this speaks to a, an attempt at indoctrination, but I have a very clear memory of the song. And uh, if you had asked me, though, as a child in Sabbath school, what the moral of the story is, I wouldn't have been able to tell you because it's not in the song. But the moral of the story is that if you want to be the person who, who builds the house upon the rock, you actually have to do what Christ says. It actually has to, mm. actually has to change your life. In other words, it's almost as if Christ is saying, this, this could just be a quaint set of ideas if you like. It's quite possible for this stuff. Everything that I'm saying to you, you might nod your head and say, wow, that's great. That's really good. But basically, the ball is in your court. 
as to whether this just becomes a, a set of ideas, a, a conspiracy theory, as it were, or an indoctrination. Or if you go out and do this stuff, try and put it into action, and it could become you could become the real thing. Yeah, Cam, I like that. Uh, and it certainly leaves us with a challenge uh, moving forward, I think, both as individuals. Are we taking it seriously? Are we actually building on the rock? Uh, and also... Uh, for us as communities, are we educating in that direction? So thanks for that. I think in the interest of time, we're going to have to leave the episode there. So I'm sure there's many other interesting thoughts that could have been raised. And if you're listening and have any that you wish to raise with us, feel free to send an email to sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts and suggestions, and we may even uh, refer to them. And, and correct ourselves or accept your guidance and teaching to us in a future episode. So thanks for listening to this one and join us next week for another Sabbath School from Home.